Today we're going to be reading from Luke 4:13 through 30. And will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke of him, spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. You may be seated. Thank you, Eliza. Good to be here with you this morning. Um, We are starting a brand new sermon series called The Great Reversal. And for the next seven weeks, um, we're going to be considering several ways that Jesus reversed the power of sin and the effects of the devil and many of the expectations that people had for what he should be doing. And we're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke, and and we're seeing that. And these next few chapters are really centered on this theme. Jesus is introducing a new era, a radically different era from what they had experienced before and really what they were expecting. He's casting out demons, he's healing the sick, and he's teaching things that are just completely contrary to their assumptions. Um, it's, it's this great reversal that Jesus is doing. Today we're um, with Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, and he is reversing their expectations in a very confrontational way, um, so much so that they tried to kill him. Um, it's worth noting here, as, as we start into this, that Luke is different than Matthew and Mark. There's a reason why we actually have four Gospels. They, they have each a unique uh, approach to this this telling of the story. And in Matthew and in Mark's gospel, um, this account actually shows up about halfway through. And so let me, I want to read for you again, verses 14 and 15 here. Um, And I'll explain what I mean. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, so he had been out um, along the Jordan River, 
and um, then led out into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil, and then he ends up going back to Galilee, okay? So, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out about him, or went out through all the I'm sorry, let me start over. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That happened before he went to Nazareth. So, the Sea of Galilee is, is a major landmark there. It's kind of down in this valley. And Nazareth is about 25 miles away up in the hills. And when Matthew and Mark tell the story, they spend a lot of time developing what happens down around the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum and all that first, and then tell about this incident in Nazareth. Luke does something different. Luke says, I'm going to start with this event in Nazareth in order to give you a summary of what his ministry looks like. Um, Really, this this event in Nazareth is a good picture, kind of a snapshot of what you're going to see through all of the, the ministry that Jesus does. And so a few of the elements that you see here, Jesus is empowered by the Spirit, and that's going to continue everywhere he goes. Jesus is bringing a message of good news for the needy and for the outcasts, which he will continue to do. Jesus is facing some some confrontation with Israel's faulty expectations and with their unbelief, and that's going to continue. And you even get foreshadowing in this story that Jesus is going to eventually be killed. You get foreshadowing because they want to drive him to the cliff and and push him off. So Luke is using this story about this really confrontational event as kind of like the front cover of the book. He wants us to see this is how it's going to go. This is kind of a summary snapshot of what's going to happen. And so he's going to, Jesus is going to preach in the power of the Spirit. He's going to preach good news. He's going to face confrontation. Eventually, he's going to be killed. And so that's really a summary of what's going to happen here. And what we're going to do today is we're going to focus in on two parts of this. Okay? So we're going to look at this new era that Jesus brought that was good news for those who were the needy the outcasts. And then we're going to also see that this new era that Jesus brought is just going to bypass, it's going to skip over those who stubbornly refuse to believe. And so all of this takes place in the Jewish synagogue. It's in Nazareth, up in the hills, about 25 miles from from Galilee. And the synagogue was basically an assembly hall, kind of like this, okay? And anywhere throughout this whole region, all around the Mediterranean, all the countries around there, anywhere that they could get together, 10 Jewish men, and that was 13 years or older, anywhere they could get 10 Jewish men together, they would create a synagogue. And they would meet together, and they would read from the the Torah, and they would read from the, the Jewish scriptures, and they would then have someone who would get up and expound upon these things. And there was a guy named the ruler of the synagogue, and his job was kind of organizing a lot of things there, everything from, you know, worship coordinator and and sometimes school teacher to custodian, you know, it's sort of like modern day pastors, you know, it's just just fill in the blank, you know, saw a cartoon one time of of what you think your pastor is doing during the week and what they're actually doing during the week, you know, it's kind of funny, it's like fixing a toilet or or studying scriptures, anyway, Um, but 
this ruler of the synagogue would just do whatever was needed there, but he did not preach. That was not his job. So the way they organized things is it was just the men of the synagogue that would get up, they would read the scriptures, and then one of them would expound upon the things that were read. And so it's very normal for what Jesus is doing here to have Jesus, especially as this this guest from out of town at this point, um, to come in and to expound on God's word. And so that's what he does. And, um, And you can imagine at this point, Jesus is... You know, he's, the, the message has gotten out about who this man is, okay? He's been performing miracles. He's this amazing teacher. He has this ministry going around to the different synagogues in the region. And so when Jesus gets up to speak, there's some anticipation. What's he going to say? What is he going to bring to us? And I want to pick up in verse 17 here. Um, look at what he says. Uh, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And that was normal. They would stand to read and then sit to teach. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What an interesting statement. Um, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that this prophecy, this statement in Isaiah is about him. Um, I've, I've never been in a church service where somebody got up and read from a scripture and then sat down and said, that's me. <laughs> I think if you ever are in a service like that, you should be concerned. There's some warning flags that should be going off there. Um, Jesus is essentially telling the people in his hometown, the time that all people faithful to God have been longing and waiting for is now, and it's fulfilled in me. And so you can imagine, there, there were at least some in the room who felt uncomfortable about that. And um, before we get to their response, I want to dive into a little bit of what Jesus is saying here through this passage in Isaiah. Jesus says, he starts with saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we've seen that over the past few weeks. So the, the event um, where Jesus is baptized in the wilderness by, by John the Baptist, um, in that moment, in that event... The Spirit of the Lord descended upon him. That was the anointing in which the Spirit of God came upon Jesus. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. He's led by the Spirit of God, it says. And now here he is again reminding everyone the Spirit of the Lord is still upon him. And upon him, anointing him for a very specific purpose. Um, He is here to proclaim good news. For, for some very specific groups of people. He's got the poor and the captives and the blind and the oppressed, and he's bringing good news for them. And these are not the popular pretty people. These are not the, the folks that everyone would expect would get the attention. These are the people that get ignored. These are the people that don't get um, attention. They're the outcasts of society, and that's who Jesus is bringing good news for. And what I want to point out here, 
kind of a little bit of a side tangent, is this is not anything new in God's plan for how he relates to people. God has consistently, throughout the scriptures, throughout time, cared about the poor and the oppressed and the outcasts. I want to read for you a few passages of scripture, and and, um, I'm not going to cite the reference. I just want you to hear each of these. They'll be on the screen, but I want you to hear each of these. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And I could just keep going. (laughs) There are so many passages of Scripture all through the Bible focused on this idea that we should care for the poor. I I could probably come up with an hour's worth of verses and just read from the Scripture all through the prophets, all through the law, all through Jesus' statements that we're to care for the poor. It was built into their law. It was built into the law code. I want to give two examples of this. Um, One is in Leviticus 19. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. It's interesting. He grounds that in who he is, right? You're with me. So therefore, take care of the poor. Why? Because he cares for the poor. Um, and so don't, don't you know, strip the, the field bare. Leave some leftovers so that you get to see that. And you see examples of that, right? Like, so the story of Ruth, everybody loves the story of Ruth and Boaz and, and how well he treats her and considers her need. Well, Boaz was doing this. He was purposely not harvesting everything. He was leaving some leftovers so that those who were in need could come along and and gather food. Um, Another example is Leviticus 25 about the year of Jubilee. And and the way the year of Jubilee worked, before I read this, um, the way the year of Jubilee worked is every 50 years, they basically had a reset. And so all the land went back to the original owners. All debts were canceled. It was this amazing system. So let me read this. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem him, 
let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. What all that means is if, you, if you're going to sell property, you know that the year of Jubilee is coming up, so you don't sell it for the full 50-year value. You sell it based on the number of years that were there. Um, but if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. Now, this is such a fascinating provision for the poor. And, um, you know, years ago, uh, my family and I, we lived down in Dallas, Texas. And we went there for seminary. And um, it was during that time, living down in Dallas, that I first came to fully appreciate the challenge of generational poverty. So we lived down there for six years. For the first three of those years, we were living in South Dallas in Oak Cliff. And Oak Cliff had this kind of reputation. Oak Cliff was the rough part of town. The locals called it the ghetto. Felt a little nicer than the ghetto, but it was still pretty rough. If you told people that you lived in Oak Cliff, they would go, oh. And so we started calling it Oak Cliff O, because that's what everybody would say. I live in Oak Cliff. Oh. You know, it's like immediate street cred if you lived in Oak Cliff. And so that's where we lived. And um, during that time, we just we got to see poverty on, in ways that we'd never seen before. We, we knew this one guy um, who started coming to our church for a little while, invited by a friend. And um, he, was, he was probably, I think he was 30 years old, 29, 30. And um, he basically lived out of his pickup truck, and he slept on his grandmother's couch. And that's how he lived. And his parents and his grandparents before him were all living on welfare, and so was he. And all he had ever really experienced was living on welfare. Um, And then he had a six-year-old son who also lived with him. He's a single dad on top of all this. And he had a six-year-old son who lived with him. And all that son knows is poverty. And, and we just, we felt, man, it was hard to watch this because we thought, how are they ever going to break this cycle? It was just a vicious cycle where each generation is teaching the next, this is just what you do. You live on, you live on welfare, you know, and you, and you depend on these things. And, and there wasn't, it didn't seem like a way out. Well, God had set things up in Israel so it didn't have to be that way. Every 50 years, there's a reset. And so just like that, God fixes generational poverty. Done. You get your land back, it comes back to you, and, and you remember in the Old Testament times, Israel had the land divided between different tribes, and so you get your land back every 50 years. Even if you've done terrible things and gotten yourself into awful debt, it comes back to you. And so that was the plan that God had for Israel. The problem is they didn't really ever do it. So if you study the, the Old Testament, what you find out is they, they did not keep the good provisions that God had set in place. Um, why did they spend 70 years in exile? Well, they spent 70 years in, in exile because they were supposed to give uh, rest to the land every seven years and then again on the 50th year. And God says, you haven't done this. And because of that, I'm going to give the land rest. I'll give the land 70 years of rest, and I'm going to remove you from it. And so God is looking at them, recognizing you have not cared for the poor. You have not 
kept these good provisions that, that he had set in place. And so when Isaiah speaks of this year of the Lord's favor that is coming, when he is going to bring good news for the poor, he's drawing on this imagery of the year of Jubilee. And that's really what Jesus is saying. We've talked about this year of the Jubilee. It's supposed to have been provided. I'm bringing that, Jesus is saying. I am bringing the year of Jubilee where God will care for the needy. Even if the nation of Israel has ignored this good plan, God is bringing favor and good news to the poor. And Jesus brings good news to the poor in in physical ways, right? So he's going to heal the blind. Um, He's going to give sight to the blind. He's going to um, heal those who are lame. He's going to restore hearing to those who are deaf. So there's some physical ways, but it's also pointing to a, a spiritual reality here. And, and the imagery of poor and oppressed, captive and needy is pointing to this recognition of spiritual need. And the big problem that Israel encounters is that they don't recognize their own spiritual need. And so they come to this point where um, Jesus is offering this amazing good news, and they're unable to receive it. And so let let me read on in the story here, verse 22. Um, Jesus has just said these words, you know, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now that is to say, (laughs) you've done these miracles elsewhere. Come do it here. Physician, heal yourself in the sense of you're able to, to perform out there. We want you to perform right here. We want you to come, come do this for us. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, what he's saying is that they, they're initially impressed with his words, but he's pointing to a recognition that they are not going to believe. And so he's pointing ahead to the unbelief of, of what they're about to say. Um, in Matthew's account, he summarizes it this way, Matthew thirteen fifty seven, And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So they're asking for a miracle. And Jesus is saying, You don't believe, and I'm not going to cater to that. <laughs> I'm not going to play along with this game. And so, where, where Matthew kind of summarizes it with unbelief, here in Luke, Luke tells the whole story, and he says, here's, here's the illustration Jesus gave. And he gives this illustration from these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And I want us to look at what happens here in each of these accounts. So, the first one is in 1 Kings 17. 
And it's, it's fascinating because this just really illustrates this well of what's going on here. So 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, now Ahab was one of the bad kings, just reminder. Ahab is not a good guy. Ahab's unfaithful to the Lord. He's, he's way far away from God. So Elijah says to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So this is, this is what's being told to Elijah. This is what you're going to do, Elijah. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that's east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Okay, so you get the picture. Uh, things are not going well in the land of Israel. The water stopped flowing because there was no rain. And so here's what happens. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Now this is Gentile territory, generally not well received by the Jewish people. This is enemy territory. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This is her last meal. This is all the food that she has. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. And the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. And what we have here is this amazing contrast. And this this sort of thing happens quite a few times through the scriptures, where you have this dramatic contrast between God's people who have the prophets and have seen the Lord at work among them for centuries. They have every reason to believe. And then you have this Gentile woman who doesn't know anything about that other than maybe some rumors, and she receives this message from the prophet in a very unfortunate circumstance. And she believes, and she responds. And you see her faith in contrast to the unbelief in Israel. And so that's, that's the contrast that Jesus is then drawing out. Okay, so, so you remember those days way back when? Elijah could have done that same thing in Israel, but he didn't. 
He left because of your unbelief. He went to someone who would believe. And it happened to be a non-Jewish person, a Gentile. 2 Kings chapter 5. Let me read this, this story. This is the one with Elisha. Also interesting how he draws this out. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. Syria is not our friends. <laughs> okay, Syria is, Syria is the enemy. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. It's interesting. It attributes the victory of Syria to the Lord. And he was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper which was ultimately a death sentence in those days. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Seems, seems like it makes sense. We'll go get the king of Israel to help us out. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches, you know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He thinks that it's a trap. <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't fix this problem, I'm coming to get you. you know? and, and the king of, king of Israel is, is concerned. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them? And be clean. So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now look at the look at the themes of faith and, and unfaith or unbelief, right? So so in this story, you know, Elisha, if you know your Bible, Elisha comes after Elijah, right? You've got these two prophets, and both of them have this history of doing these amazing things in Israel and abroad, of these miracles that they perform. And so the king ought to have known that there's a prophet in his land who can do these things. And yet he does not have any faith in this. Naaman, the commander, doesn't seem to have much faith in it. Who has the faith? Well, 
First, it's this little girl, right? This little girl who's taken captive from the land of Israel. Uh, She shows up and she says, if only he could come to Israel where the prophet is. If only he could come here. He would see that there's someone that could cure him, that could heal him. And so this little girl, we don't even know her name, um, she has faith. And then Naaman's servants have faith. We don't know anything about them or, or, or anything other than that they have faith. They believe. And so here we have Naaman, the commander of this enemy army, being brought to this place of being healed because other people have prompted him out of their faith to do this thing. Here's the point. Nobody is too far for God, right? Naaman the Syrian, who is like the last person you would ever think that would receive God's healing, he gets healed. This widow in Sidon, which is way up north, she gets provided for. And and all of this because of faith. And so God's favor is is able to extend to those who believe. But but the point that Jesus is making is he will not, he will not do miracles or perform for those who do not believe. Um, He's not going to do anything in Nazareth the way that he did in Capernaum. And in case there's any confusion about how the townspeople really feel, um, they decide that they want to push him off a cliff. And so you, you get this, this immediate recognition that there is, there is something brewing under the surface. And Jesus, Jesus just goes looking for trouble. He's just actively trying to stir, stir up trouble and mine for conflict here and, and find the problem and point to it. And the problem was, they were not willing to let Jesus be who he is. They wanted to fit him to some kind of a mold. And he says, this is, this is what I'm doing. I am the one that the Spirit of the Lord is upon to proclaim this good news, but you must believe. And that's really the message that he's driving home here. And the last thing I just want to point out is that there's no middle ground with Jesus. Jesus is going to do this over and over. This is, a, this is a great front cover for the rest of Jesus's ministry. This is really the, the opening of Jesus's ministry. Because over and over, he's going to force people to make a decision about him. Nobody gets to, to be neutral on Jesus. He either is who he says he is, or he's an imposter. And that's really what's being driven home here. Is Jesus the fulfillment of this promise, or is he just an imposter with empty promises? That's what he's pushing them to to decide. Um, I'd like to read a quote. This is from James Edward, who's a New Testament scholar, and I think he just does an amazing job summarizing the issue here. He says, The unsettling truth of this story is that the greatest danger to the way of God in this world is posed by those who are closest to it. Jesus is rejected not in Sodom and Gomorrah, but in Nazareth. He's betrayed not by the devil, but by one of the twelve whom he chose. He's crucified not in pagan Rome, but in the heart of Israel at Jerusalem. The rejection of Jesus repeats the rejection of God in the history of Israel, 
Israel, whose ultimate adversary was not Baal worship or foreign nations, but my own people, God says, who are bent on turning away from me, declares the Lord. Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The real danger is not that we're going to to miss out on what Jesus is saying. The, The real issue is that we're not going to receive the Word of God when it comes to us. And so what, what the challenge that we have to face here is that there's no riding on the fence with Jesus. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. There is no being on the fence. We, we have to make a choice. We have to accept what he's saying or reject it, but there's no middle ground. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We still live in the year of the Lord's favor. We are still in that time. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 2, I, I love this. He says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The year of the Lord's favor is still going on. We're still in that time period where God is giving opportunity for us to respond. For Israel, it was was this brief time period where Jesus was there. But through the church, this is extended. This offer is still out there for us to respond to the Lord. And so I just want to first, I don't know where everybody's at. I know most of you, but I don't know where you're at with the Lord. If you have never taken the time to, and and really come to the place of putting your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, I would encourage you to do that today. Um, We had the opportunity a couple weeks ago to celebrate four baptisms, and it was so much fun. It was a a great time. Um, Many of you were there. such a neat opportunity, and, and through a variety of different reasons or different ways people came to faith in Christ. And God does that. God operates in our lives in different ways and in how He draws us to faith in Him. But this morning, if you are considering this, I would encourage you to come talk to me or Dan or, or anybody around here. We would love to talk to you and tell you what it means to put your faith in Christ. Um. For those of us who have trusted in the Lord, uh, we sometimes say it like that. We've trusted in the Lord as if it's a one-time, I'm done, I got it. You know, I trust in the Lord and and now I'm set. Uh, The reality is in life, that gets put to the test, doesn't it? Uh, We trust in the Lord and and then sometimes we don't. (laughs) We have to trust in the Lord again. And there are struggles that we go through challenges that we go through. And the good news of this passage is that God cares about the poor. He cares about the captives and the oppressed, those who are in difficult situations. God cares about those needs. And so when our, when our faith gets put to the test and we're facing challenges, it's good to remember that God is good, that God cares about our needs, that we can put our trust in Him. And so I just want to encourage you guys um, if you are in a place where you're struggling with unbelief, and you're like, man, I, I'm having a hard time with God right now, um, I would encourage you, put your trust in the Lord. 
Now is the day of the Lord's favor. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and kind and compassionate. Father, you consider the needs of the poor and the weak. And Lord, so often we are tempted to overlook people in those situations, Lord. At times we're in those situations and we expect help, but when we're not, Lord, it's so easy to overlook or ignore those in need. And yet, Lord, you see all of it. And God, you care for us in our, in our place of need. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would put our trust in you. Lord, may we never be like the people in Nazareth who were given this amazing opportunity, Lord, to respond to you, to know Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the one who came to set all things right. Lord, they had this amazing opportunity, and instead they decided to drive you out of town and push you off a cliff if possible. Lord, I pray that we would not respond in unbelief. Lord, 